The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. On entering Parliament in 2017, my guest was quickly pegged as one of the Conservative Party's rising stars and an example of what she calls the British dream, going from immigrant to parliamentarian in the space of one generation. She was born in the UK but spent most of her early years in her parents' native Nigeria. At the age of 16, and in the face of political unrest, she moved back to the UK. Graduating with a degree in computer systems engineering, she took these skills into the professional world as a software engineer and then to the private bank Coots and then later here at The Spectator. She made her move into politics as a Conservative member of the London Assembly, then beat Theresa May's own special advisor to the ballot of Southron Walden, winning 41% of the votes. As Minister of State for Equality, she has led the government's strategy for tackling race inequality. The most recent addition to her brief came in the reshuffle when she was appointed as a minister in Michael Goh's levelling up department. Of politics, she said, Democracy, like sex, is a messy business. It's not always predictable. Its results aren't always elegant. They can be unexpected, but we adjust, and it's the unexpected that keeps politicians on their toes. My guest today is Kemi Badenoch. So thank you for joining us today, Kemi. We've been trying to get you on this podcast for some time. I think we could say two years if we're going to go there. We begin by asking, was yours a happy childhood? I mentioned in the introduction you were born in London but spent much of your childhood in Nigeria. Yes, it was a happy childhood. And it's very interesting whenever people describe me as being born in London because they assume that my parents lived here and were immigrants here. They weren't. I left London when I was two weeks old. My mother gave birth to me here because of an obstetric referral. I didn't have any ties to this country. And I grew up in Nigeria apart from a brief period in the US when she had a fellowship at a university and she took her children with her. So I am very Nigerian in a way that many other people who are second generation aren't. I speak another language. I have lots of old friends from school there. My parents, well, my mother, my my father passed away recently, still lives there, as does my sister. So I know it very well. And it is a very interesting place and ended up informing a lot of my political views and is why I am a conservative. Yeah, you said in your maiden speech, you were unlucky enough to live under socialist policies. It's not something you would wish on anyone. So does that mean you were aware of politics from quite an early age? No, I wouldn't say I was aware of politics, but I was very aware of the outcomes of bad decision making. And many people challenge that because there was no official socialist government. It didn't call itself that. I lived under a military dictatorship for pretty much all of my life, bar maybe when I was three. And so whenever people ask me, did you always think about becoming an MP? I tell them no, because we didn't have democracy. It wasn't something that I ever considered. But I saw what happened when government does everything and government is responsible for everything and people rely on it rather than doing their own thing. What happens when there's so many regulations that business is starved and can't actually help to build a thriving society? So it's things like that that informed my, certainly my economic views. And that's what I mean by that. 
Now, I mentioned that you had a UK passport. You described it as one of Willy Wonka's golden tickets. Did that set you apart from other children growing up in Nigeria? To some extent. So I didn't know that I was a British citizen until I was 14 years old. And Had your parents just not? They just didn't know. They had me here because they needed to use a hospital here. And they didn't realise that that would give citizenship. Obviously, that law has changed. I think it is actually quite a mad thing but it just goes to show just how open our sort of immigration sort of rules were at the time and I don't think it certainly would work now because just the barriers global barriers have come down people travel a lot more getting on a plane in 1980 from Africa was a very rare thing and so the golden ticket analogy I use is in the context of Nigeria being a really, really terrible place at the time. In 1994, it was the most brutal dictatorship that we had. Universities were closed down. There were riots and protests constantly. We were thrown out of the Commonwealth not long after. And it was like a prison you couldn't leave. And then all of a sudden, someone says, you really should apply for a British passport. Here are the forms, see what happens. And the next thing, these passports come in the post like, (gasps) I can leave, I can escape. There were other people who were entitled to British citizenship, but it was still a fairly unique thing in 1996. Less so now. What was it like when you moved to the UK then at 16? Was it much of a culture shock or? Yes, but not in the ways that people think. So obviously I spoke the language, so I didn't have language barriers or anything like that. The weather was weird coming Still case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, The weather was weird because I'd never seen long days so arriving in the summer and the sun not setting until nighttime, that was that was really bizarre. Or getting on a bus for the first time, because there wasn't really any functioning public transport. You either walked or if you had a car, you got in a car. So getting on a bus for me was really exciting. Getting on the underground was really exciting. I felt like you know, I was in a, a totally different world. And those were the sorts of things that were culturally different. Shocking. No, it was just a very exciting time. I was 16. I was on my own, more or less. I was staying with family, friends, but... They weren't around most of the time. So it was also just the freedom of being able to do whatever I wanted within the resources that I had. That was really exciting. Were you in London? Yes. Yeah. Did you have a wild time in London as a 16-year-old? No. If you were, no. 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 I, I, I think... <laughs> you weren't like breaking into clubs. No, no. I don't even think that I would have... It would even have occurred to me to do that. It was exciting, but also scary. And... I was here to study. That's what my parents wanted me to come here to do. The idea that I would go out clubbing, it would not even have crossed my mind. I was working, watching lots of TV and doing A-levels. <laughs> Fair. Um, now, did you start to think about university? Because one of the things when we were researching for this podcast was, mm. you know, teachers telling you apparently not to bother applying to Oxford mm. or try to be a doctor. Can you talk us through that? What, what so, was going on there? again, probably providing a little bit more context. So my parents are doctors and academics. I come from a medical family, which meant for, for a long time, I grew up in a sort of relatively wealthy middle-class family. And by the time I left Nigeria, it wasn't like that at all. We didn't have any money. There was literally nothing. So people often say, you know, you came from a wealthy background. You're not like other Africans. I did experience a lot of the poverty as well. And when you grow up in a family like that, there's the expectation that, of course, you're going to be a doctor. And I'd already gotten entrance at a very young age to medical school in Nigeria and pre-med in the US. But then coming to an FE college in the UK... The teachers didn't say, well, what do you want to do? They said, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to be a doctor when you can 
be a nurse or all these other easy easy things why are you aspiring so high and that was the first time that I'd ever encountered an attitude like that which was well don't aim as high as you can just you know try and do something more achievable were you put off by them or did you no just... no because I still had my parents influence yeah. and you know we didn't have mobile phones and things like that in those days but I spoke to them often enough for them to be horrified and shocked and I remember my dad shouting, you know, and asking if they were mad <laughs> to, to suggest to suggest such a thing. Of course, his daughter was going to grow up and be a doctor. So it's an example of something that really shapes how I view education now and family. The family is so important. The family you come from has so much more of an impact than what schools will do, what teachers will do. And so supporting strong families and strong communities is something that I think is really important. And I think the conservative way of doing that is the way that's most helpful. Now, you go and study computer systems engineering. I think you're the first guest on this podcast to have studied that. (laughs) (laughs) What made you want to go into that avenue? So sort of halfway through the A-levels, maybe partly because teachers kept saying well why do you want to do medicine it was the first time I questioned whether it was something I wanted to do or something that my parents wanted to do and you know again one of the great things about this country is there's so much choice there are so many things you can do and I had been coding already you know I first learned to code at a very young age sort of seven long breaks and it was just something that I enjoyed and I thought well I want to do something computing I like fixing things I like solving problems I was always more analytical in terms of the things that I enjoyed doing. And so I pitched that course instead. Now, university, at this point, are you feeling as though you are a conservative? Are you political? Are you getting involved in the conservative society or anything like no, that? No, so no, much? no, no. I never, I, I, I never did anything like that at uni. I found my course so tough. I spent most of the time just trying to get through it. So I didn't enjoy university at all, certainly the first time. Second time, it was a little bit more functional. But I remember there was a conservative society at Sussex and it was a very small thing. Sussex was a very left-wing university and if anything, probably being there made me more conservative. It was almost a reaction to sort of very spoiled, entitled, privileged, the metropolitan elite sort of in training at university. I saw it first there and I remember getting really angry the way they talked about Africa in this sort of very patronising, condescending way, as if the people who came from that continent were babies who needed people like them to look after the continent, otherwise uh, they'd never be okay. And I was just very, very disturbed by those sorts of attitudes that didn't allow Africans agency, and black people in particular. And that's something that has stayed with me for a very long time. I'm very suspicious of a lot of the people who claim to be wanting to help black people or help Africans, but really what they're doing is signaling their own status as the kind of person they are. They're not really interested in the people they claim to be trying to help. So you're developing your political outlook, but you're not yet a card-carrying conservative? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) And the views you're obviously going to take on with you. So when you finish university, what do you decide to do career-wise then? So I then go into what almost everyone who studies engineering or computing does in the early noughties, late 90s, slightly overlapping with dot-com boom. You go work for a software or IT company. I worked for a consulting company called Logica, and I got very bored very quickly because I'd done everything that I was supposed to do. I was finally working. I was earning money. 
but it wasn't exciting. And I was becoming more sort of certain about what my political views were. I didn't think that I would get involved in politics, but by then I knew that I was a conservative and just interacting again with people in the workplace, loads of my friends having gone all over the world and finding London quite lonely. I thought, well, why don't I just join the Conservative Party? Also, the leadership election had started by this point. Uh, David Cameron had become leader of the party and it all felt very exciting and really fun. I thought, well, why don't I do this? This might be an interesting thing to do. So did you find being a Conservative Party member also brought a level of socialising with it? Yes and no. It was social in the sense that I met people who I probably would never have met ordinarily. So just people in my neighbourhood. And being in London can often be quite isolating. That There's so many people, but you don't know the person who lives next door. And you join a local Conservative Party and you start to meet people who live in your neighbourhood and they're all ages, people you would not have interacted with normally. But I, I think the thing that really set me on the path to becoming an MP was going to a Conservative Future Christmas party and meeting Francis Maud, who was the party chairman at the time. And I had a chat with him and he said, you should think about becoming an MP. And you think, the party chairman said that. And if if your friends say, oh, you should should be a politician or or family members, it's a joke. But when the chairman of the party says that... Yeah, often you have too many opinions. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) That's that's what they're saying. But when when someone like that says, you should think about this, you start to think, oh, actually, maybe I could do. And it's one of the reasons why there's this sort of campaign, Ask Her to Stand, that a lot of people are waiting for the suggestion. And it actually inspires many people to think about a career in politics. Now, you worked at Coots, mm-hmm. but you also worked here at The Spectator, where mm. we first met. And when you came to The Spectator, was that when you were starting to think, I do want to be involved more in politics? I was already well past that yeah. stage by the time I came to Spectator in 2015. So I'd stood for Parliament in 2010, the few years after I'd had that conversation at the Christmas party, in what I thought was a marginal seat, but turned out to be a very safe Labour seat. And that was against Tessa Jowell. Quite safe. And... <laughs> And the reason why I came to The Spectator was because I tried to find a seat in 2015 and I didn't. And I knew that I was bored working in banking and I wanted to do something completely different. And The Spectator had a political side to it. Many people assume I was a a journalist here. So it's one of the really funny things is when people say, oh, I loved reading your articles at The Spectator and I never wrote a single article. You know, I was on the management board. I did, um, you know, digital and, and, and ran things. So... It just shows how... Flattery. <laughs> yes, people people are more interested in flattering you than actually understanding who you are or, or what you're about. When they say that they enjoyed your articles in The Spectator, do you correct them? No, or no I never do. I you're just, just like, thank thanks you. so much. <laughs> because it, it also, it gives me an insight into that person and correcting them, I think they'd probably find embarrassing. Some of them are trying to be polite and so why, why make things awkward? Yeah, I remember you had a spreadsheet, I think, for all the I digital problems of the website. I love spreadsheets. Quite unorganised vibes around <laughs> Now, you were elected to the London Assembly in 2015, mm. which is why I think you were... Yeah, um, so, uh, so I was doing that while at Spectator. Yeah. That was your first step, I suppose, into politics and actually doing the role, would you say? Yes, it was the first time I was elected to anything. So after you stood as a candidate and an MP unsuccessfully, mm. did you ultimately think this isn't going to happen for a while and then the snap election comes up absolutely absolutely that's absolutely what i thought was going to be the case i thought well so there may be an election until 2020 i had had my second child and i was still sort of i think it was about six months when that snap election was called so i certainly wasn't planning 
for Parliament at that stage. But when the snap election was called, I thought, I've got to get in this time. I'm very ready. This is absolutely what I want to do. And I need to find a place that will take me as their MP because, well, we already had a Conservative MP where I lived. So that's all that. And that's one of the things many people don't understand. They assume that you only ever represent where you live, but it's a job vacancy like anywhere else. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll get something close to home. But most of the time, you've got to go somewhere else. What is it like getting on those selection lists where you actually go to the constituency? Because it's only a couple of, I think for listeners who don't quite understand the process, it's only a, you know, a couple of people who are picked when there is a vacancy to be the candidate. You go, you will make a speech, you ask yeah. some questions. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So it's like a job interview in front of a live studio audience and you, you make a speech, three minutes, of why you want to be their MP and then they get to ask you lots of questions and they test whether you are the person that they want and I looking back on it because I'd applied to to quite a few places I didn't understand that the job interview aspect of it was not how to approach it so you think you're doing a job interview like any other job and I would talk about all the competencies I had and all my work experience why I'd be a good MP but it's actually not really like that what it's like is speed dating and they're looking for an emotional connection and many of the very good people who don't get selected fail to make that emotional connection because they're trying to show how competent they are. And the people want someone who they feel represents their views, who is their kind of person. That's really what they're looking for because you can't agree with people on every single policy area. Even we as Conservative MPs have fundamental disagreements about what we think things should be so there's no sort of correct answer for all the questions they are judging what sort of person you are and how you make them feel do they think you're a good person do they do they think you're not and when you look at many of the people who probably shouldn't be MPs who are you find that they're very able to charm an audience significantly and get over some of those hurdles which which others can't so Saffron Walden, you get picked to go to this one. Now, that was very much seen as a plum seat, I remember from the time. You know, there are lots of people who had their eyes on it. And one of them was Stephen Parkinson, who was Theresa May's special advisor. So how much notice did you get when you had to go to... Now, Lord Parkinson. Yes, Lord Parkinson. There we go. Exactly. There's there's always a way through. How much notice did I get? Not very much notice. Maybe 48 hours. Did you have high hopes for it? No, no, because... When you look at who you're being put up against, you think, okay, so that's the person that they want. And you're just like going in to fill the seats and make sure that they're not just going up by themselves and and it looks like a coronation. But actually, to the credit of the Saffron Walden Conservative Association, they were giving everybody a a fair crack at it and they wanted to know who would be right for them. So do you find out on the night that you get picked? Yes, yes, yeah. you do. So, so you give your speech, they ask the questions, all the other contestants <laughs> do the same thing, and then they ask people to vote, and then they count the votes. So you, you're there waiting, and it is, it's a very nerve-wracking experience. Thankfully, I was there with my husband, who sort of was a very, very sort of strong anchoring points and making sure that you don't just fall to pieces. People do, people behave very strangely sometimes at these selections. I've seen quite a few now. The count, I remember when the votes were being counted, I thought that I'd lost because you, you were asked to come and watch the count so that there's no accusation of cheating. And I thought, oh, they're not that many for me. They're not that many for me. But I'd actually won on the, on the first ballot. And it just goes to just the psychology of what's happening. You're not really 
in an objective stage. There's so much excitement. There's a lot of adrenaline. And then they told me that, that I'd won. And it was absolutely amazing. It was a dream come true. And your husband's calm and you're like, we suddenly no, no, he, move. Wasn't, he wasn't calm. He was just calmer than I was. <laughs> he, he found it very exciting as well. Because I met my husband at the Conservative Association that I first joined. So he's somebody who is very political, even though he's not in politics. He's very political and he finds it interesting. So it was a big deal for him as well. I read that when you went to your first Tory conference, you said one of the speakers was quite rude about you and your husband Hamish stormed up to the podium and, and told them off. Yes. <laughs> He was rude to me, not about me. He was rude to me. I don't know if I should mention who it is, but he is a, he's a Daily Mail columnist. And it wasn't a podium, it was a panel event. And I asked a very reasonable question. And rather than answer the question, he was attacking the fact that I was asking it, which was extraordinary. And my husband was so angry. I was, we weren't married at the time. This was but, sealed the deal. Yeah, right? yeah, we're still dating. So angry that anybody would speak to me like that. And, you know, at the end of it, after he'd sort of shouted at this person and walked out, I thought, this one's a keeper. (laughs) And is he still very protective of you? Yes. Yes. Very much so. Probably like a full-time job now. Um, I think so. I think he finds it. Whenever people talk about, you know, the stress and hassle that MPs get, I think the impact on families is far more. I've got a very thick skin and the job itself is so all-consuming that you often don't have time to worry about who's attacking you or in in the extreme cases who's trying to kill you as um, some of my colleagues have to deal with but your spouse your children they don't have the all-consuming nature of the job to stop them from worrying about it and they're worried about it all the time now you enter parliament in 2017 obviously it must feel like a great moment of celebration the fact you and I in parliament but Mm -hmm. yet the mood music around it Theresa May's lost her majority. <laughs> it's a hung parliament. So it's, it's, it's quite it's, a small group, the 2017 intake. It was, it was a small intake. It was also very Scottish as well. So it was the sort of the silver lining in the cloud that was the election was that we actually had a large contingent of Scottish Conservative MPs for the first time. And I remember all of the 2017ers were so excited at coming into parliament And we met sort of this despondent parliamentary party who really weren't interested in all these new people who just turned up. You know, you were like, hey, hi, so happy to be here. And, you know, people might have just said, given us the finger or were very, very dismissive because, of course, they lost their friends. They had friends and colleagues who had lost their seats and their majorities in many cases had been cut. So having new people who did not give a majority was not particularly interesting to them. But it also meant, I think, that the 2017 intake ended up spending quite a lot more time with each other than others do, and we're all sort of fairly very close and friendly. Now, you were quickly heralded as a rising star. In 2018, you were appointed as the Conservative Party's vice chair for candidates, and before that, you sat on the 22 exec committee. What's it like being called a rising star? Does it get irritating? It's very irritating. (laughs) It's very irritating because I think it's quite random how they pick who is or who isn't a rising star. One, it means that you get more attention over every little thing that you do and you actually find it quite hard to just to find your feed. I think it's also irritating for colleagues who might be working harder or doing a bit more to get noticed and someone else is being touted for reasons that are yet to be explained. I mean, the rising star thing happened before I'd even said anything in Parliament. I hadn't even done a maiden speech. And I think the other thing is that because I am black and a woman, I stick out more. 
And I think that people just do the, oh, well, this, I've noticed this person. It's easier to notice someone who looks different from everybody else and just decide, okay, well, we'll, we'll decide that that person's the one who's going to get all the attention. Yeah, and I, I imagine people in the Tory party too want to show that they're now a diverse party and therefore you can get more attention for that reason too. Yeah, there is there is some of that, but I'm quite resistant to it. So yeah. I've never... It, it's quite interesting now having to do a lot of work on race as a qualities minister. It was not what I came here to do. In, I never thought I'd be talking about race at all. It wasn't something I wanted to be known for. I didn't want to be the black MP. I wanted to be known for my views about free markets and you know personal responsibility and how we can have new innovative policies and so on. And I've ended up in the place that I didn't want to be, but... I don't think that's a bad thing. I look at it more as a duty rather than something I want to do. If I wasn't doing this, I don't know who else would. And I think it's important if there's a responsibility and there's work to be done that you you just get on with it and do it. Yeah, no, I saw you recently doing an in-conversation with Paul Goodman and you were talking about some of the quality work and, and you were saying that you, this is not why you came into politics. No, came no into it's not. But, politics, but, but with but... everything that's happening right now, in terms of the national conversation we're having on race, certainly over the last two years, and much of it going in a very unhelpful and I think destructive direction. I don't think that's the time to say, oh, I don't really want to talk about this, this is not my thing. And you know, I'd much rather just talk about dry economic policy, I'm a treasury minister, which I was at the time, that, that's what I want to do. So you don't really get to pick your battles in politics. Everybody comes in thinking, oh, this is the thing I'm going to do, this is the thing I'm passionate about and then events, just as I don't think the Prime Minister thought he was going to spend the first two years of his premiership doing COVID, and that's what happens. Events take over, and you just got to roll with punches. Yes, because in your, in your role as a qualities minister, you've obviously been leading in terms of the response to the report compiled by the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. Mm. You've been one of the people defending that report um, yeah. when it said Britain was not institutionally racist. Mm. And I just wondered, I mean, that is the government position, but does it sometimes feel a bit lonely because it feels as though there's lots of people in your party who do hold the same position broadly, but mm. they don't go out on the airwaves to talk about it. So I think the Sewell report was interesting. It was, there was a lot of learning there for me in terms of how what something says isn't what gets reported. So the thing I found most frustrating was dealing with the inaccuracies in terms of the reporting. And there's so much political activism in this space. It's actually very hard to get heard as a minister who's got a hundred things to do and you're talking about this particular thing on this day. And so many people are scared to talk about these issues because they get attacked for it. So I'm not surprised that many colleagues who agree with me don't say anything because we've created a situation where if you're white, you're not allowed to talk about race. You have to defer to the people who are a different color, only they have permission to speak. I think that is wrong. And I am hopefully doing enough to create a space where everybody can have that conversation. But there is, there is a serious penalty. And it's not just whether you're white. If you look at what's happened to Tony Sewell, having an honorary degree rescinded because Nottingham University felt that he was politically controversial. I mean, I think that's extraordinary. And whenever people wonder why do more ethnic minorities not speak on this issue when they feel differently to the people who are speaking the loudest, because there's a penalty to pay. If you are a black or Asian, you know, or, or other ethnic minority who doesn't like what the left is saying on race, why would you speak up if you're going to lose your job, have a degree rescinded, and who's, who's going to come out and stick up for you? So we need to stop the, the mob mentality and the intimidation. 
which is a shame that that's what Nottingham University sort of succumbed to. It's quite disgraceful. When we're talking about, obviously, you being often the person going out to speak for the government, there was a Guardian article that suggested you would cross the road to pick a fight. Um, <laughs> do, do you recognise that description? Or um, do you think that's what happens when often you're seen as the person who is most able to talk about his issues for the Tory party. I, I think that's just someone being being rude about me, which which <laughs> comes with the job. No, I would not cross the road to pick a fight, but I don't shy away from confrontation. And I say that very deliberately because I think that politics is where we're meant to deal with difficult decisions. If things were easy, if a decision is easy, then it's not political, it doesn't need politics. We as politicians are dealing with issues where maybe there are no good options and you have to find the least worst one or whatever you pick is going to create losers, they're going to be trade-offs and we need to find an arena where we can have the confrontation, have the battles, have the arguments and that's why Parliament is great because there are rules around how you conduct those debates, calling people a liar or being insulting or rude, those are all things you know which the Speaker doesn't allow but then you can have difficult conversations in that space. When you allow the argument to seep into the general consciousness, I don't think it's a great thing. And I, I look at the referendum, the Brexit referendum, and everyone having the political argument at their dinner table with their friends at work, with their families. People didn't like it. They didn't like arguing about Brexit with their parents or with their children or having co-workers be rude to them. I think more often than not, politicians need to do the job in Parliament, have the debates and have the, the arguments there and not be scared of confrontation. And one of the things that is making politics a lot harder is social media because you can't just have the conversation amongst each other, agree to disagree or, or win an argument, win votes, because people outside are attacking the arguments themselves at a volume, which is very difficult for any single individual to take. So if you have strong views on abortion, for example, even if it's a minority view, previously you would have that view. I was reading you know, Jill Knight's obituary, you know, things that she had said around abortion. You would have that view, people would disagree with you, you'd say what you thought and that was it, and we'd come to a decision. Now, you will get thousands or if not tens of thousands of people attacking you in a very visible public forum, and that makes a lot of people very scared to, to say what they think. And I don't think that that is, that is right. Yeah, because we just recently had the pills by post vote, yes. which was a free vote, mm. but you voted that it shouldn't be extended. Yes. Um, we had the regulations come in because of coronavirus regulations. And we recognised that many women would not be able to have abortions the way they normally would do because of restrictions. And we had an end to all of those regulations but there was a Lord's Amendment I think it was a Lord's Amendment to bring them back in. It's a very interesting thing because abortion is probably the area that I most left wing on in terms of what I think women should be allowed to do. I'm very very pro-choice but you can still be pro-choice and yet think well maybe not like that. I don't think that way is appropriate. Why don't we do something in a different way? Yet you will end up being portrayed on social media as somebody who's anti-abortion rather than anti a particular change in a process. I've just got a couple of final questions. One was we're talking a bit about the rising star tag and I wondered at what point did you start to realize that everything you do is going to have more attention on it because I remember there was a story that got dug up to call for something which I would not say is in the main public conscious and you're given an interview where you'll confess to the naughtiest thing you've done was yeah. hacking into the website of a Labour MP yeah. as Harry Harman in 2008 but all of a sudden that this old interview you've given it, was, it wasn't an old, old interview yeah. it, was, it wasn't an old interview 
interview. But you're right, it was the first time that I really understood what having a public profile meant in the way that people react to you. So the interview was after I'd become an MP. It was sort of a new MP, who are you, what are you about? And I'm somebody who loves jokes, very self-deprecating, loves pranks, and that's the kind of stuff I've been doing since I was a child. And I thought it was the naughtiest thing I'd ever done. And there was a a time when I clicked on um, Harriet Harman's website, I can't remember why, it asked for a username and password. And I thought, why is it asking me for a username and password? Literally typed the first thing that came into my head and I got into the back end of it. And you know, as you know, I'm an engineer, I understand computing. And I thought, oh, this is too good not to do anything about it. So I put a poster, it was during the first mayoral elections for Boris Johnson in 2008. So I put a giant vote Boris poster on her website. I mean, I didn't like sort of destroy it or, or take anything down, but I did put a vote Boris poster on it, which I thought was very funny. And loads of people, <laughs> loads of people thought it was very funny. And I thought, oh, this would be a really funny thing. I'll tell them about this. No one ever knew that I did this. So this wasn't me being caught or anything. And I thought, well, this was like 10 years ago. Yeah, I wasn't an MP or anything like that. This is a funny story. This is the naughtiest thing I've ever done. People will recognize what a humorous, uh, hilarious person I am. And instead, I started getting branded as a criminal and people were referring me to the police. It's quite funny because even my local police were like, oh, just so you know, people are asking us to, to investigate you. And at the time, it was a very, very minor offence. We've actually strengthened laws around um, doing that sort of thing. But I just thought, oh, I put a poster on someone's website. You know, I didn't delete it. I didn't impact their work. But the reaction to me telling people that I had done that, I found really quite astonishing, especially as it wasn't something that people had discovered on their own. And I thought, oh, I have to be really careful what I say. I can't just be me anymore. I can't just be jokey, sort of playful me. I've always got to be Kemi, the MP at all times. And that's been really difficult. And I did apologize to Harriet, who's a a very lovely person. We obviously disagree on on almost everything, but she is what I call a sort of like an old school sort of Labour MP, where it's not personal whatever the disagreements are. With many of the new Labour MPs there, you you think of people like Laura Pidcock, who just couldn't understand how anybody could be a Conservative. It was just so visceral. Harriet wasn't like that. And I think the other thing that I realised, having now been an MP, is when people do those things, when people write a rude letter to an MP or they play a prank or something, everyone thinks that they're doing one thing and that's it. But from our perspective, And I think this is why I did apologize to her. It's just one of hundreds of thousands of things that people are doing. Everybody is lashing out and you're the sort of the lightning rod for all of their feelings. But the cumulative impact of all of those people doing that to a single MP is actually, it's very, very significant. And I'm not surprised that more and more MPs are staying in Parliament for a shorter period of time. You've got to be really strong and thick skinned to deal with it. And have you kind of developed a new way of dealing with the media attention you get? Because obviously there's been a few things, there's a Twitter incident, others, but... Yeah, I don't know. I think I take each day as it comes. And actually being a qualities minister has sort of meant there's just a real baptism of fire. I actually don't notice so much of it anymore. Everything in the equality space tends to be contentious. So if I put out a statement about your small brewer's relief or red diesel or something on VAT when I was exchequer secretary, like nothing there'd be there's nothing but if i put out a government statement on you know what we're doing on conversion therapy everything would you, you know would be on fire people 
would be screaming, even though it was just you know, repeating what the current position the current position was. People are very emotional around identity politics, and because of the Equality Act, all identity politics ends up being in my portfolio, whether it's on race, whether it's on women's issues, whether it's on LGBT issues, or um, what else do we do that people get upset about? Lots of things. <laughs> There's always something in the equality space. So I think if you, if you do want to be an equalities minister, you've got to be very aware of the fact that it's personal for many people and contentious and be able to deal with that. So the media attention, I think I've sort of just gotten used to because it's just the nature of the job. I'm sure if I become a transport minister or something, then uh, you will never hear about me in the press again. There's a suggestion for the reshuffle. No, 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 that's not, that, was, that was not a suggestion. That was me being self-deprecating. <laughs> Two very final ones. First, I just wanted you talked about how in the past about how most of your views lean to the right. Do you have any Labour friends? Yeah, I do actually. So probably Florence Eshalomi, who was on the London Assembly with me, I would say is a friend. She's also Nigerian. So there's that in common. There's a lot of cultural stuff that we have in common, which can be very entertaining. So yeah, I do. There are a few Labour MPs who I like. I like Joanna Cherry, who's SMP and it's a shame that people have just become so visceral about politics that, well, if you think this, you must be a bad person rather than you have a different opinion. And just the final question is when we ask everyone on this podcast, which is what is the worst advice you've ever received at any point in your life? <laughs> at any point in my life? This is such a tough one because people give advice and I never take it. So, it's so, you can so they, they give me lots of bad... I, I don't think I've ever been given... <laughs> bad advice that I took. Most of the terrible things I've done have been my own decision. Nobody else was involved. But I do remember shortly after I became an MP, this is the whole, where the whole rising star tag is unhelpful. So I remember having lunch with two MPs who'd been elected in 2015, who said to me, Kemi, you really shouldn't be writing articles in the Telegraph. Only ministers should be writing um, articles, you know. Just stick to your local paper and show everybody that you're a good constituency MP. And, you know, that's how you will get promoted. If you, if you keep writing all these articles telling people what you think, you know, the party's never going to promote you. And I just thought to myself, wow, like, what is, what, why would you say such a thing? And I don't know whether it's jealousy or people thinking that you're getting too big for your boots, but the idea of telling an MP not to say what they think for me is for the birds that's madness that's what we're here to do and if anything being a minister is harder because you it's collective responsibility we have to you know even when we disagree with things we're all doing it as a team so you can't say what you think as much as a minister you can talk about your portfolio rather than just broader thoughts around policy and being a conservative and I would say I think it's very bad advice and I definitely think that MPs should say more rather than less about what they think about issues. So yeah, so that's some bad advice that people should not take. Thank you, Kemi, and thank you for listening.